I want to get going this morning with a question. The question is, why is it when it comes to the Christian faith, we're all such slow learners? Why is it when it comes to the, the, the things of God, we can be so hard of heart, so slow to learn? Like, I suspect if all of us were being really honest with ourselves this morning, we would have to confess that none of us learn spiritual lessons the first time round, do we? None of us are good to go, are we, after reading a passage of Scripture just once? And I suspect that though many of us could give ample testimony to having experienced God's goodness and faithfulness in the past, why is it that our past experiences of God often fail to influence and impact our lives today? I'd put it to you that one of our biggest problems as Christians is we we suffer from the spiritual disease of memory loss. We forget who Jesus is. We forget what Jesus has done. We're so slow to learn. We're so hard of heart. Well, I begin by mentioning this because as we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John... You remember that last week we were looking at verses 1 through 15 of chapter 6, where Jesus miraculously fed the multitude on the mountainside. And he did so with just five barley loaves and two small fish. And if you were here last week, we, we said that Jesus was testing his disciples right before the miracle. Where are we going to get bread? Where are we going to get food to feed this crowd? And sadly, his disciples, they they failed the test. Even though Jesus had given them ample evidence in the past and all of his previous signs that he was the one who could provide for their needs. He was God. They forgot. And so Jesus performed this amazing miracle. He, He... made us buffet dinner for, for all who were gathered. Well, as we come to verses 16 and 21, we now have Jesus' fifth sign. In fact, the, the events of this passage happen immediately after the feeding of the multitude on the mountainside. And just like all of Jesus' previous signs, this sign is going to point the disciples to who Jesus is and to what Jesus came into this world to do again. Because Jesus understood that his people need to learn the same lessons over and over and over again. If you were to look down at the order of service sheet, you would see that the title of our sermon is the same as last week, Jesus Greater Than Moses. That's no mistake, that's deliberate. Here in John chapter 6, we've been saying that John's trying to drive home the point, Jesus is greater than Moses. That's the backdrop in chapter 5. All the Jews have put their hope in Moses. Jesus comes and says, I'm greater than Moses. All the scriptures speak of me. All that Moses wrote was regarding me. Last week I said, verse 4 of chapter 6, which said, the Passover was at hand. That's a key detail to understanding this passage. 
in many ways it unlocked for us the feeding of the multitude because it reminded us that it, in so many ways there's a striking similarity with God feeding his people in the wilderness with manna from heaven. And once again, that this little detail that it was Passover time is going to unlock this sign. Because this sign of Jesus walking on water has striking parallels with Moses leading Israel through the Red Sea. So as we come to this passage, let me invite you to have the Exodus events in the back of your mind. Three points. We're going to look at the setting of this sign, verses 16 through 19a. We're going to look at the sign itself, verses 19b to 21. And then finally, we'll spend some time thinking about the significance of the sign. Look at verse 16. John begins setting the scene. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. John begins by setting the scene by telling us it's evening. We know from the other gospel accounts, it's actually 7 p.m. And if you want to picture the scene in your mind's eye, picture the disciples meandering down the mountainside, heading towards the, the Sea of Galilee. This is their old stomping ground. Some of them were fishermen. They knew this See at the back of their hand. Now, if you were, if you're picturing this scene in your imagination, as you picture the twelve disciples coming down this mountainside, presumably they're still carrying in their arms baskets, overflowing with bread and fish from the miraculous buffet dinner that Jesus had just provided for them. And if you and I had been there and we'd met the disciples, we, we might have said to them, guys, how are you doing? And with sheer shock and amazement in their face, they'd say, we're full. Like, quite literally, we're full. We, we, we're, we've just stuffed our face. Jesus, incredibly, fed thousands just a moment ago. And they'd say, we're full of all. Like, Jesus took a little boy's pack lunch, literally just five barley loaves and two fish, and he fed everyone. And then I, I suspect they might say as well, but we're exhausted. You know, we've been waiting on the people. And Jesus has just made us gasp for it. And then continue to, to picture the scene in your mind's eye as they walk down, they get to the seashore, and they jump onto their boats. They load the baskets, and they prepare the sails and the oars. And John says they set out for Capernaum which the scholars tell us was, was about five miles from where they were. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we're told that the reason they're headed to Capernaum is because Jesus instructed them to go there. Just tuck that little detail in your mind for a moment. Tuck it away. Notice that John adds this detail. It, it was dark. Now, now, it's a... Strange detail to add. He's already told us it's evening. Now he wants us to know that it's dark. Now in John's gospel, references to darkness are really significant. Remember Nicodemus? He came to Jesus when it was dark. 
And what did it symbolize? Well, physical darkness reflected the fact that Nicodemus was still in the dark to who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. Can I suggest to you that when it says here that it was dark, it's because the disciples are in the dark as to who Jesus is? Yeah, they understand something, but they don't fully get it. Now, you might be surprised at me saying that the disciples are in the dark. Surely not. Well, just in the scene before, they, they failed the test. They didn't understand that Jesus was the one who could provide for all the people. Despite witnessing all of his previous signs, they did not believe Jesus would provide in that moment. So the disciples are in the dark. Then John says one other little detail at the end of verse 17. Jesus had not yet come to them. He's setting this scene up in a rather ominous way. The disciples are in the dark and Jesus is not there. They're alone. And the question, of course, for us is, where's Jesus? Where was he? Well, the previous verses tell us that Jesus, remember that the crowds, after they'd witnessed the miracle, the, the miraculous feeding of the five thousand, the crowds wanted to make Jesus king, but by force. And so Jesus evaded them, and he went up the mountain. Now, just press pause there for one moment. Does that sound familiar? If you know the Exodus story. Who was always going up and down the mountain? Moses. And what was Moses going up and down the mountain for? To commune with God. To pray. Mark tells us Jesus went up the mountain to pray. Exactly the same as Moses. Okay, let's press play. John continues to set the scene. Verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, if you've ever visited Israel, you've visited the Sea of Galilee, one of the things you'll know is that the Sea of Galilee sits 650 feet below sea level. It's in this bowl, as it were, with these mountains and hills. And and, and in many ways, they they form a a perfect wind tunnel. In just an instant, the the wind can come rushing down from from the hills. And when the cold wind meets the moist air of the water, perfect conditions for a storm, for things to get rough and choppy on the water. Now, for the disciples, at least some of them, this would never surprise them. They were used to these waters. And there's one person who certainly knew that there was a storm coming. And that was Jesus. You see, the previous passage told us Jesus knew exactly how the disciples were going to fare when he tested them. Because Jesus has got sovereign knowledge of all that's going to happen. Before you speak a word, he knows exactly. Jesus knows exactly what you're thinking right now. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in your heart. Jesus knows what's going to happen in your life tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month. Jesus knew exactly that these disciples were headed into a storm. He'd instructed them to go. Can I suggest to you that Jesus is once again testing his disciples You know, I I said this last week, God's in the business of testing us as people. And one of the reasons God tests us is to see if we've learned the lesson that he's been teaching us. 
And Jesus here has been trying to teach his disciples who he is and what he's come to do. And one of the ways to, to, to expose what's in their hearts, well, it's put them in the midst of a trial and to see what's really going on within. There's nothing like a trial to expose a person's true character. Now, this is where things get revealing. Verse 19. When they had rode about three or four miles. Now, stop there. That's hugely revealing. Because in Matthew and Mark's account, we're told it's now the fourth watch of the night. That means it's now 3 a.m. That means they've been battling in the storm for eight hours. These disciples' minds, they thought, right, okay, there's a storm, there's a strong wind, but we're going to get through this. In their minds, they thought, strong wind, high waves, they aren't going to get the best of us. And so they've been straining at the oars, as Mark puts, as, as Mark puts it in Mark 6. Struggling. Now, do you see that they've not learned the lesson? The lesson was, what do you do when you're in a time of need? Who can provide? Who can help? Jesus. They they didn't cry out to Jesus when it came to who will feed all these people. And now they're in another sticky situation and they are not turning to Jesus. What's, What's really fascinating is when you read this account in Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus is on the mountaintop praying and from the top of the mountain it says Jesus saw his disciples painfully making headway Jesus saw his disciples struggling in the middle of the storm it's the dead of night, it's dark, but by the way, it's Passover time, it'd be full moon, so there would be some light from the moon, but still Jesus can see his disciples caught in the eye of the storm, rowing frantically, struggling, exhausted from hard day's work, now exhausted from eight hours of pulling the rowers. They're completely shattered, giving it their all, but they're moving nowhere fast. John, John, the author, he was one of the disciples in the boat, he says, we were about three or four miles. All he knows is that they are not at their destination. They're still in the middle of the lake. Now, I cannot convey how spectacular a failure this was for the disciples. If one of the disciples had said to another one of them, where's Jesus? They'd have to say, he's up in the mountain praying. And they all should have in that moment said, well, that's what we should do. (laughs) But they didn't. And even still, if the disciples had taken just one moment to look around the boat, there's 12 baskets full of food, standing as testimonies to the fact that Jesus is faithful to meet his people in their moments of need. Jesus has a proven track record 
So there's the scene. Set. The disciples fail the test. It's dark. They still don't get who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And so they've not even bothered to cry out to him. We'll now look at the sign. Verse 19b. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Now, don't you just love Jesus' timing here? It's the fourth watch of the night. It's 3 a.m. These disciples are probably giving up all hope. They're at their wit's end. They're in the middle of the lake. They're getting nowhere fast, physically exhausted, emotionally drained, spiritually indifferent. And then they definitely weren't prepared for what happened next. As they're struggling against the storm, they, they, they look out in the sea and they see a figure. They see someone who their minds refuse to believe. It's Jesus. And he's walking on the water towards them against the wind as if there is no wind. He's walking on top of the waves as if they're dry ground. Interestingly, see the word in the original for walking here? It literally means walking effortlessly. So so the picture is disciples straining at the oars, struggling, weary, exhausted. Jesus walking effortlessly towards them. These disciples knew the Old Testament. They sang the same song we just sang a few moments ago, Psalm 107 which says in it that God can walk on the waters. They would know from Sunday school, Sabbath school at the synagogue, Saturday school rather, (laughs) Sabbath school, um, they would know Job chapter 9 verse 8. That says God stretched out the heavens and he trampled the waves of the sea. In fact, one of the most fascinating things is if you get a, a copy, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you read that verse, Job 9, verse 8, and you read John 6, verse 19, the exact same words. Now, don't miss the point. What's the point? Here comes their God. As Jesus walks on the water, he shows himself to be the God that they sang about at synagogue and in their homes. How do you respond when you see God? Well, look at how the disciples respond. They're full of fear. They're frightened. And again, it's, it's fascinating. They're not frightened at the storm. They're frightened the sight of Jesus. If there's anything to commend about the disciples in this scene, it's this moment. This is the right response. Awe, reverence, and fear is the most, is the most appropriate response to God, to the Son of God. Now I suspect that they were also fearful because, well, They've been spiritually indifferent. They, they weren't expecting this to happen. They weren't expecting to see Jesus. They weren't expecting him to show up. Man, they hadn't even cried out to him. Mark in his gospel says at this very point in the narrative, the reason they didn't is because they'd hardened their hearts. 
So that begs the question, so why did Jesus choose to walk out to them on the water? Here's the answer. Because he loves them. Because he cares for his people. Because he has compassion on his people. Because he's never indifferent to his people. You know, press pause. X the story. What did Pharaoh need to soften his heart to let God's people go? Sign after sign after sign. What did the disciples need to learn who Jesus was? Sign after sign after sign. And here they get a spectacular sign. Here they get a visual demonstration of the fact that Jesus is God. He walks on water. The winds and the waves, they obey him. They're under his control. Now, the allusions to the Exodus events here are are just so striking. They're just so unmissable. So, Jesus comes to them, and here are his words to them. It is I. Fear not. Moses, when God's people are standing with the Red Sea in front of them, the Egyptian army behind them says this to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Such a striking resemblance. But notice the difference. Moses says, fear not, because the Lord will bring salvation. Jesus says, it is I. Fear not. Why? Because he's the one who brings salvation. He's the one who brings deliverance for his people. If you've got ears to hear and eyes to see... Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, again, if if we were to have a a Greek translation of the Old Testament and we were to read the passage we read from earlier in the service, Exodus chapter 3, you know when God speaks to Moses through the burning bush and Moses says to God, who will I tell the people sent me? And the voice comes back from the burning bush, God says, I am who I am. Tell them it, I am, has sent you. The exact same words, ego, I, me, are the words that Jesus says here. It is I. So as Jesus comes and he reassures his disciples, he also makes this further, full disclosure that he is God. He is the I am. And don't miss this. This will help you understand your Bible. Remember Jesus said, all of scriptures speak of me. Who was the voice speaking through the burning bush? God, you say. Jesus. The Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is God. Moses' ministry was just a foreshadow. It was just a type to point to the mystery of the Messiah. The long-anticipated, long-promised Son of God. Now the sign's not over. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. (laughs) Now don't you just love this, right? One minute they're full filled with fear 
The next minute they're full of gladness. (laughs) And they receive Jesus into the boat. Now, now, just enter into that scene for one moment, right? Jesus has been up in the mountain praying. They've been at this for eight hours. They're in the middle of the lake. They're three, four miles off the shore. And and all of a sudden, they're receiving Jesus into the boat. And then the next thing they know is that they've arrived at their destination. Jesus is better, is the better Moses of the better Exodus. See, if you, if you read the Exodus, right, it was from dusk until dawn that it took the people of Israel to cross the Red Sea. Here's Jesus, and in the twinkling of an eye, they reached their destination. They're safe. They're on the land. Now, you know, when I was studying this, I was in the study this week, I, I couldn't help but think, you know when John was writing this gospel account as he put the pen to parchment, he must have smiled. <laughs> he remembered this night. And he thought to himself, how slow of heart, how slow to learn, how hard of heart we, are, we were regarding who Jesus is. Sign after sign after sign. You know, in many ways, the disciples are just a perfect picture of you and I. How many times do we need to be reminded of who Jesus is? How many times do we forget how glorious and how good he is? So as we come to the end of the sermon, let's just look at the significance of the sign. I want to highlight it. Jesus makes clear in this sign, it points to the fact that he is a great I am. He's the Lord over creation. He is the Son of God. He's the one to be trusted. He's the one that we should all learn to call out to in times of need. He's the one who delights to come to his people in our lowest moments. That's who he is. He's God. And and, and look what this passage teaches us about what Jesus came to do. Now, this is where you need to know your Bible pretty well. If you know the Old Testament, you know that the sea is a symbol of all that stands in opposition to God. And if you know the, the book of Revelation, we looked at this not long ago, the sea is actually where Satan comes from. Revelation 13, it's where the beast emerges. As Jesus tramples on the sea, this is a picture that he's come into this world to defeat sin, Satan, death. If, if last week's miracle, the feeding of the multitude on the mountainside said, was, was, was a sign to show this is how well Jesus saves. This is a sign that shows us in high definition, Jesus will save. He triumphs over his enemy. He tramples on the sea. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, the only appropriate response to Jesus if you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, is to believe in him. It's to fear him for who he is. You know the burning bush? 
said to Moses, take off your sandals for the feet you stand is holy, for the, the ground you stand is holy ground. Don't domesticate Jesus. He's not to be trifled at. He's not to be ignored. Respond to him, but, but, but see, see, see just how glorious he is in his love and his compassion. He, he comes to you and invites you to come to him. He's come to provide for your greatest need. He's come to defeat your greatest enemy, death, sin, and Satan. But, you know, as I, as I finish applying this sign and its significance to our lives, I think this has got so much to teach us as believers. This passage, there's just so much pastoral application that can be gleaned from it. Remember the, the, the little detail I told you to tuck away in your mind? Jesus instructed them to go to the other side. Literally meaning, Jesus sends his people into the storms of life. Do you know that when you go through trials, tough times in life, it is all under the sovereign, wisdom, providence of God? Do you know that trials are divinely designed in life to teach you lessons? to fill up in you what is lacking, to make you mature. Do you know that the trials and the storms of life are, are given to us by Jesus because he so loves us and he wants to teach us not to rely on our own strength, depend on our own wisdom, look to our own resources. He wants us to learn to trust in him, rely on him, depend on him. Second thing this passage shows us is that Jesus sees us in our struggles. So not only does Jesus send us into the storms of life, as it were, or allow us to go through them, he also sees us. He's never indifferent. His eyes are always upon you. His ears are always open to your cries. He sees you when your life is caught in the eye of the storm. And, and, and listen, do you know what he's doing for you? He's praying. Hebrews 7. He ever lives to pray for his people. He's praying for you. He's praying that God would use this trial to make you more like him, that he would use this trial for your good. He's got nothing but love and compassion. His purposes are always good. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Far higher, far greater. But he sees us in our struggles. And don't miss this. He, he comes to us in our need. He came to the disciples. He walked on the water. He, he came to them. He entered the boat with them. The thing that they lacked was his presence. But he came and he was with them. You know, the presence of Jesus is everything when you're in the eye of a storm. You know, the challenge for us is that we need to learn to pray to him as he prays for us. We need to learn to know that he is with us at all times. But then notice this. He speaks to us. And he tells us, do not fear. The most repeated command in the Bible, 365 times, do not fear, do not be afraid. 
And, and, and you know when you and I are fearful in life, and, and all of us have to be honest, we're all gripped by fear. We fear the past, we fear the present, we fear the future. We fear the unknown, we fear our people's opinions of us. We fear so many things in life. We live in the grip of fear. But you know what often is our biggest problem? We fear the wrong thing. You want to put all your life into perspective? Learn to fear the one who is God, who is in control of all. Fear is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. And, and, and when it comes to fear, you know, you know, you hear that command, do not fear, and you think, well, I just can't snap out of my fears because you've seen that command. Every time when we're commanded in scripture not to fear, it's rooted in who God is. And so when you're fear, feeling fearful, you know what you need to learn to do is remind yourself who He is. You need to fill your mind with thoughts of who God is. You need to remind yourself that he is good and he has proven himself and he's shown himself to be faithful to you in the past and you need not worry. He will be good and he will be faithful to you all the days of your life. And the final thing, this is how glorious Jesus is. He always takes his people to the intended destination. And do you know where your destiny is? Do you know where you're headed? Well, if you're a believer, you're headed to the new creation, to be with him. And in this life, in this journey of faith, Jesus' constant destination for us is to make us more like him. And Jesus, through all the trials, through all the storms, is using it to make us more like him. And on that last day, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be there. We'll see him. We'll be made just like him. You know, there's another disciple in this boat. He wrote a letter years after this event. And this is what he wrote. Cast all your anxieties, all your fears, all your cares on the Lord Jesus Christ. For he cares for you. And so, church, open your eyes. Open your ears. See and believe. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we have to confess that as your followers, we are so slow to learn. So quick to forget who you are, how good you are, how glorious you are, how faithful you are. Your words that you've spoken to us that are written 
in the pages of Scripture, so quick to forget your promises, so ignorant of your purposes. So Lord Jesus, we pray that this morning that as we go from here, as we go into this week, we would go with a sure and steady step that you are with us. That you, you see us, you're praying for us. You're inviting us to pray up to you, to depend on you, because you'll provide for our every need. And even when it doesn't feel like we understand all that's going on, We thank you that you know what's going on. You see what's going on. You are working out your purposes for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be filled with hearts that both fear you and hearts that are glad. Because we know you love us. And we want to love you for all that you are and for all that you've done. Hear this, our prayer, in your precious and in your wonderful name. Amen.